you think you are. We're going to spend several weeks, the weeks leading up to Easter, Easter's in four weeks, um, helping you figure out who it is that God made you to be. Well, we always read a passage of scripture out loud, and we invite you to stand out of uh, respect and reverence for God's word, and so I invite you to do that with me if you would now. I'll read from Genesis chapter 41. We're going to be looking uh, for these three weeks at the story of of, uh, Joseph and his father Jacob, and I'll read it out loud. You can follow along on the screen if you have a Bible, and I encourage you to keep it open as we look at it this morning. So Pharaoh, verse 41, said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck, and he had him ride in a chariot as his second in command. And people shouted before him, Make way, or bow down. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks so much for standing. Well, I have this contention that in life, the questions that you ask are more important than the answers that you come up with. In fact, I would say that if you have uh, the wrong answer to the right question, that's how you end up having the wrong kind of a life. You've got the right question, maybe, uh, but you end up with the wrong answer to it. It it leads you in all kinds of um, dark and Uh, destructive kinds of places and so uh, there are the big questions in life though right there are the questions like why am I here these are the questions that people have been asking since human beings have walked the planet Uh, what's my purpose here Uh, what's the meaning of life how do you become a good person and how do you know who the good people are and then how do you become one of those good people these are the these are the big questions these are the right questions that human beings have always been asking, and then when you get the wrong answer to those questions, uh, things don't go well for you. And then this question that we're asking uh, through this series is, well, who are you? This is one of the fundamental questions. It's a question about identity. It's about knowing who you are. Because here's what I here's, here's what I've found is that when you know who you are, uh, it unlocks doors that you previously thought would never open to you. And when you don't know who you are, you go through life having the sense that other people. Uh, seem to know something that you don't. Have you ever had that experience? You've gone into some setting and it seems like everybody else in the room knows something that you don't and you're kind of thinking, am I, am I just dumb? Am I, wh- what am I missing here? I, sometimes for people, church can be that. Uh, you walk in and it seems like everybody knows what to do and what to say and how to talk and we try as hard as we can to remove the barriers for people so they don't have to wrestle through that. But it's one thing when church is like that, it's a whole nother thing when your whole life is like that, and you just seem to go into every situation, and you just always have these questions about if you're doing this right, and it seems like everybody knows something that you don't. And now here's what I know as a pastor. I know that eventually life unravels, even when you're asking those big questions. I'm just going to guarantee that to you. I know you didn't come for great news like that, but at some point in your life, life is going to unravel. You're welcome for the good news this morning. And I found that one of the most important questions to ask when life unravels for you is this big question that we're asking through this series. Uh, who are you? Who are you? I ask that question to people when they come and talk to me, trying to get some insight into why this is happening in their life. And what I've found is that people uh, are conditioned, Henry Nouwen says this too, that people are conditioned uh, to respond to that question in one of three ways. Most of us, as Americans, what we say when someone says, who are you, we respond with what we do. We say, well, I'm a student, or I'm an iron worker, or I'm a business owner, or I'm a mom. And we're conditioned to answer that question 
uh, with a statement about a function that we perform in our life. And we somehow think that defines who we are. The problem with that is that at some point, you will no longer be a student. Sometime in the future, you will no longer be an iron worker. You won't be needed as a mom in the same way. Your business will either close or you'll sell it or you'll retire from it. And if you've been defining yourself by what you do, then who will you be when you no longer do those things or are able to do those things? Who will you be then? One of the other ways that we tend to respond to that question is we say something like, well, we talk about what we have. And we say, well, I have, I have health or I have fitness or I have money or I don't have money or I have a home or I have multiple homes and and we're conditioned to make uh, to answer that question uh, saying you know these are the things that I have these are the things that are in my possession well that kind of begs the question well when the day comes when you can no longer have those things and those things cease to be things that you define yourself by who will you be then one of the other ways Henry Nouwen says we define ourselves uh, when that question about who we are comes up is we say things like, well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm successful, or I'm pretty, or I'm good-looking, or I'm smart, or I'm wise, or I'm, uh, I'm someone that people look to for answers. We answer that question, we're conditioned to answer that question um, with what people say about us. But here's the question, at some point in your life, people are not going to anymore say, wow, he's, she's so beautiful. Um, you're, you're as, as much as you work on your body, at some point, it's not going to do what it used to be able to do. I remember I was, uh, we were helping, I was in a, a group of uh, people, and we were helping this older couple, and they were in their 90s, and, and uh, I was in my early 30s, and uh, I was in good shape, and, and uh, the guy came up to me, and he slapped me on the arm, and he squeezed my arm, and he said, I used to be just like you. <laughs> The day's coming for all of us when we don't have, we don't, we, people don't say those, won't be saying those things about us. And then who will you be if you've defined yourself by those things? We all have to pass, uh, I call it the hospital bed test. Uh, let's just say that you get in the scenario where you're laying in a hospital bed and some sickness comes against your body and they can't figure out what it is and you're in the hospital for a long time. Now listen, you may say, that never would be me. Well, I've visited people in those scenarios, and they would tell you, I didn't think I'd ever be right here like this, going through this health scenario. And when you're laying in that bed, and you can't do anything, and you don't have anything, and people aren't saying good things about you, well, who are you then? Who are you then? And if you can answer that question, then you've gotten to the source of who you are. Now, this, this, whole, this whole question, answering this question and, and not having the wrong answer to it, it actually explains a lot of the suffering that we have, a lot of the psychological suffering that we have in life. Uh, men are like this. We tend to be uh, the, the ones who define ourselves by what we do. In fact, there's a, a very common thing that happens when men have had a job for, uh, in, say, in the same industry for years and years and years, and then they retire. It's not uncommon for a short time later for the man to die. Well, what's going on? Well, he's defined himself by what he did for so long that when he no longer does it, he's not sure who he is, and so he gives up. And that creates a lot of pain. Well, it can also be the same kind of thing that happens uh, when a beautiful woman has looks and she's beautiful. And it's why you see women that have been uh, stars for a long time and you see the picture of them when they're 75 and you go, wow, looks like she's had a lot of work done. Why is that? Well, she's clinging to something that she used to define her. She was defined by her beauty. And then when you have no longer have your beauty and no, people no longer say how beautiful you are and how gorgeous you are, well, who are you then? 
it's not always this way with uh, just moms, but it's often this way with moms. Sometimes it's with dads, but this is why some moms, they, they, their children grow and they become adults and the mom cannot let go and cannot stop being the mother. And so the mother involves herself in her adult children's lives in a way that they're, she still treats them like they're about seven. And that creates all kinds of tension and all kinds of suffering inside the mom. Why don't you love me? And why don't you? And then the kids are mad at mom and they talk about mom and it creates all this psychological suffering. Now the Bible's word for all of this is idolatry. It's, the, it's when we take a good thing and we make it into an ultimate thing. We, put, we pin all of our hopes and dreams on that thing coming true. I mean, this explains a lot of the suffering because we've got the right question. Who am I? We're just answering it in the wrong way. And that results in the wrong kind of life. Well, that's what this series is about. We're, we're going to try and say to you over the next three weeks that the anchor point of your life isn't what you do. It isn't what you have. It isn't what people say about you. The anchor point of your life is what God says about you. This is how Dallas Willard says it. We'll put it on the screen. It says, your life is God's gift to you. Who you become is your gift to God. God gives you your life. Here it is. It's a gift. The person that you become, what you do with your life, that's the gift that you give back to God. We're going to come back to that. So this series, we're going to give you some handles on how to do that. Now you may say, well, you know what? I've kind of, I've wrestled with this question. I'm, I'm in the, the twilight of my life and I don't really need to know about all this. Well, you're going to have to pass uh, on to the next generation how they can figure out who they are. And so I hope you'll take the handles that we give you through this series and you can hand that off to someone else. If you're, if you're younger and you're still wrestling with this question, because everybody wrestles with this question, hopefully this will give you a set of handles that you can use for the rest of your life and that you can pass on to someone else and uh, you can help them wrestle through this thing that you're trying to wrestle through. Because here's, here's the first handle, okay? We're going to put this on the screen for you. Uh, it's this. You'll find out who you are by looking up, not by looking in. The answer to that question, who are you, uh, if in our culture, if you were to try and answer that question, you would either go to Barnes & Noble or you'd get on Amazon.com or you'd, uh, and you'd look for a book that was maybe in the self-help section. And not all books are going to say it this way, but they're going to give you some version of, now listen, the secrets are inside of you and you need to look inside of you. And there's benefit to that. We'll actually talk about that a little bit next week. And they say that, that basically the starting point is to look deep within. And if you look deep within, you'll discover who you are. I would suggest to you that's not the place to start, that you, you find out who you are first by looking up to God and then by looking in, that we'll talk about again next week, because here's, here's the reality. It's God that defines you, not you. And the reason is you don't have the right perspective on your life. Your perspective and my perspective are limited. We can only see what we do. We can only see currently what we have. We only hear the words that people say about us and we absorb those things in and say, well, that must be right. I must be on the right track because I'm getting the right feedback. But God sees the bigger picture. He sees something that you and I don't see. It's kind of like uh, a parent of a teenager. Now, our oldest son is now into the, into the teenage years, and um, I kind of know what to expect. I was a youth pastor for a number of years, and so I, I saw this happen with kids, and it's one thing to know what's coming, and it's another thing to be in it. So just pray for us. Whew. And uh, we're going to get through it. But... But what I've often would notice, and I see this, as I would say this to parents, I would say, now listen, you've had your child for their entire life, and you've seen their tantrums and their triggers and their emotions, and you've seen the things that have shaped them, and you know them better than they know themselves. But when they hit adolescence, what happens is they kind of wake up in a way to life and to what's around them, 
and they don't realize that you've seen them their entire life. So they think they're this new person and they're negotiating this new relationship with you. And so when you come to them and say, I know you better than you know yourself, like, no, you don't, no, you don't know me at all. You're like, oh, whatever. Right? You, you have the perspective as a parent that your child does not have. Well, this is magnify that times 100. That's God's perspective on us. He sees the things that we don't see. And, and if we're going to know who we are, we have to go to God first. And that, here's, here's what I know, though. That's a very hard process. So this story of Joseph uh, that we're going to look at today um, illustrates the, the process that we have to go through to understand who God is and who we are. And uh, it, this, honestly, is probably in the Bible next to this, the, the Gospels, the life of Jesus. This is probably my favorite story. I read it on a regular basis, somewhat regular basis, at least once or twice a year. And there's just so much emotion in it, and it's so uh, poignant, it's so true to life about how human relationships work. And at the end, Joseph weeps and runs out from his brothers. If you don't know the story, I'll tell you it here in just a minute. But he weeps at the end, and every time when he weeps, I, I tear up, and I go, oh man, what a, what a powerful, powerful story. Because here's what I know about us, is that who we are unfolds in the context of our story. Your life is a story. It has a beginning, and it has a middle, and it has an end. And our lives unfold in the context of that story. And so that's why we love movies. We go to movies, and we watch someone's life on that big screen, and we go, man, I'd like to be like that person. Or we see the, we see the trauma of someone's going through, and we say, oh, I don't want to be like that person. In stories, we find a little bit out about ourselves. And so I want to I tell you uh, this story. Now, where we picked up in Genesis chapter 41, verse 41, was kind of at the end of, of the story. It's after a 13-year journey that Joseph has been on. And what we see is that he's in Egypt. Um, Egypt was the superpower of the day. And he's just been basically uh, lifted up to the second in command in Egypt. And so what he does in terms of his identities, he's a ruler now. And what he has is he, now he has wealth and power. And what people say about him are bow down. People, uh, people say all kinds of great things about him. And he apparently has it all. He could be, in one sense, like the American dream, right? We just want, we want that. We want to be in charge, and we want to have money, and we want to have power, and we want people to say all the best things about us. And this is not a guarantee. The story is not a guarantee that that will turn out that way for you. Uh, but it's a story about, how, about who he became along the way and, and what the journey did inside of him. So you have to, if you're going to understand the story of Joseph, you have to back up. You have to go to Genesis chapter 37 and the opening scenes that we see about Joseph's life, and you have to go several hundred miles north to the land of Canaan, modern-day Israel, and there's Joseph, and he's 17 years old, and he's uh, a shepherd. His father has many flocks. He's a wealthy man, and he's out tending his father's flocks, and he's the youngest of 12 boys, and uh, if you know how boys are when they're together, they're just a crazy energy, crazy competition, and he's the youngest of 12, but um, the narrative says that he was his father's favorite and that his brothers despised him. So much so, because his father um, uh, lived, was a, a trickster. We're going to look at his life, Jacob, next week. He was a trickster. He was a, dece a deceiver. He was a manipulator. He used people in situations to get what he wanted. Um, he, he was just a, a devious kind of person who created a dysfunctional environment. So if you feel like your family is dysfunctional, great story for you, right? Because all of our families on one level or, or another are dysfunctional, right? Some of our families put the fun back in dysfunctional but here, here's this story. He's a, Jacob's a polygamist, and his, he's the son of the wife that he loved the best. And in fact, he gave him the coat of many colors. Maybe you know the Broadway play, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Like, this is the story about Joseph. And this coat signifies to his brothers who are older than him that his dad loves them better. And he, he's proud. 
and then he has this dream. So Genesis 37, 5, we'll put this on the screen. says this, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He had these two dreams. He had, the first dream was that these sheaves of grain, like he and his brother were, our brothers were harvesting, uh, all his brother's sheaves all bowed down to his sheaves. And he went to his brothers, told him this dream. They tell him this dream. He's, they already hate his guts because he's the favorite, and he lets them know it. And he already wears the coat that daddy gave him, and they're mad about that. And they hate him all the more when he tells them the dream. And then he has another dream. And then the dream is, you know, the sun and the moon and 11 stars bow down to him. And he tells them that dream. They hate him even more for that. So what happens is, is he starts where we all start. He started like he was the center of the universe. His idea about his world was that he was the sun and that everything revolved around him. And there may be a God, but, the, but even God is on the edges of his life. And uh, so what he does is he rules over his brothers. What he has is he has his father's favorite. Uh, favor and what people say about him is that he's his favorite and he thinks this is who he is and he thinks that this is going to be his life and this is where he's headed and that's always going to be it's uphill from here man it's just going to be beautiful it's going to be fantastic so what happens his father comes to him and he says now listen your brothers are out in the field and i want you to go see what they're doing and then i want you to come back and i want you to tell me and then while he's out there are his 11 brothers and his brothers hate his guts and they see him coming from a distance and they say there's that dreamer and they start to talk amongst themselves and they say, uh, to, they say, you know what? We can get rid of this problem once and for all. Let's kill him. We'll dip his coat in some blood and we'll take it back to our father. And, and he'll think that he died and we'll be rid of this problem forever. And so they talk about that for a little bit. And then the oldest, uh, his wisdom prevails. And he says, don't do that to our dad. He says, let's do this. Let's just take him and we'll, we'll see what we're going to do with him. And so they, they, when he comes, they, in essence, beat him up. They strip the coat of many colors off of him. They throw him into a dry well. And as they're sitting there talking about what they're going to do next, because they didn't plan this all out, they see coming up a caravan of some merchants that are coming from another country, and they think, you know what, we'll, the light bulb goes off. And they say, I know what we'll do. We'll sell him to them. We'll sell him into slavery. We'll be rid of our problem. And so that's what they do. They sell him into slavery. They take a goat. They kill the goat. They dip the, the coat in blood, and they take it back to their father and say, Father, we don't know what happened. We just found Joseph's coat. Some animal must have killed his father, overcome with grief at his favorite son, says, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And they've now sold him into a life of slavery. Now, you have to pause at each point in this story, because we read the end of the story in Genesis chapter 41. We know how it ends. But he doesn't know that. He's not aware of how the story is going to end. As far as he knows, this is it. He's 17 He's been sold into slavery. He's going to live a life of servitude, maybe be killed. He doesn't know what. And you have to pause and then put yourself in the story, too, and say, well, what would something like that do to you? Who would you think you are? How would you perceive God in yourself? Would you think God's mad at you? Is God out to get you? What would happen? So Genesis 39, the story picks up again, and what happens is he's taken, and he's taken to Egypt, and he's sold uh, into the household of Potiphar. Potiphar was the captain of the guard of the pharaoh. This was uh, maybe not like the chief of police. It'd be probably more like a head of state of some sort, maybe like the secretary of state. And he's, so he's a very important household. And there, something clicks inside of Joseph, and he realizes, okay, this is some kind of opportunity. I better make the most of this. And so he earns Potiphar's trust, so much so that Potiphar puts him in charge of his entire household. And the narrative says that Potiphar didn't worry about a single thing since Joseph cared for it so well. Except one day, um, Potiphar's wife notices Joseph. Now he's 17. This may, maybe he's 19, 20, 21 in that neighborhood. And the narrative says that he was well-built 
and handsome. In other words, he was a stud. <laughs> and she notices this. And now everything you think about politics, all the nasty stuff that you would assume is underneath the surface, you're kind of meant to understand that she was that. And so she propositions him. And uh, he says no. And then one day when everyone's out of the house and it's just her and him, she says, she propositions him again. And he says no. And she grabs his cloak and he, pull, he runs out of the room. And as, she, as he leaves the room, she's yelling for him and he's, he's gone. You see something about his character. You see his character beginning to develop. And then when Potiphar comes back, she basically blames Joseph and says, listen, uh, while you were gone, I, I can't believe this. Uh, he came in to me and I screamed and he, he ran out and he left me with his cloak. Now, it says that Potiphar burned with anger. But the kind of the assumption you kind of have to read into the text there is you have to say, okay, this was probably how his wife acted a lot. And he wanted to save face. And so it doesn't say he was angry at Joseph, it just said he burned with anger. Probably against, here, here she is again doing this one more time. To get rid of the problem, to maintain peace in his household, he puts Joseph into prison. Now, again, you have to pause in the story and you have to say, he doesn't know how this will end. As far as he knows, this is it. He's now lost his family, he's lost his position, he's in prison, so what does he do? When he, if asks, who are you, Joseph? When he says, well, I am what I do. Well, what do you, what do, you do? Well, I'm a prisoner. Well, what do you have? Well, I got nothing. Well, what do people say about you? Well, I'm a thief. I guess the whole world has collapsed. And he doesn't know about the end that you and I know about. So you got to, again, put yourself in the story. What would something like that do to you? Who would you think you are? How would you perceive yourself and God? Is God mad at you? Is God punishing you? But there's this little phrase that gets repeated here. Um, um, in verse, chapter tw uh, verse 20 of uh, chapter 39, uh, and the phrase is this, but the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. We don't hear what Joseph's internal dialogue's like and, and the anguish that he must have felt at losing his family. We just hear that God was with him and that God was actually helping him. And we, we might have, maybe Joseph was saying things like, God's abandoned me or I'm a failure we just know that God was with him despite what he might have thought. And so then another wake-up call comes of sorts for him. He goes to the prison, and the same thing that happened in Potiphar's household happens in the prison, and he becomes the one who's in charge of the prison, and he oversees everything, and everything's going great for him. And Joseph's maybe thinking that maybe I, maybe I can see a way out of this scenario. And then Genesis chapter 40 happens, and one day two prisoners come in, two political prisoners. It's the cupbearer and the, the chief baker, the head chef of, the, of Pharaoh's household. And probably what was going on is there was uh, uh, the assumption on Pharaoh's part that there was a plot to kill him because the, chief, the chef obviously would make the Pharaoh's food. And the cupbearer's role was he's kind of an advisor, but he also would taste all of the food. So he was to make, if someone wanted to assassinate the Pharaoh, they could poison his food. So the cupbearer would drink the, the wine and would eat the food. And if he died, then the Pharaoh would go, hand me another plate. <laughs> Sucks to be you. So he would... Uh, he would do that, and so the, the, the pharaoh probably assumed there was a plot, and so he thought, well, I'm going to sort this out, I'm going to call the FBI and the CIA, and we're going to sort all this out, we're going to make sense of this, and so I'm going to throw you in prison until we figure it all out. And while they're in prison right there with Joseph, who's not sure what's coming next, doesn't know the end from the beginning, they both in the same night have a dream. And they have this dream, and we'll put it on the screen for you, this is what they said uh, the next morning, Genesis 40 verse 8. We both had dreams, but there is no one to interpret them. Then, notice what Joseph says to them. Do not interpretations 
belong to God. Right? Do you see the, so when he starts out the first dream, it's all about him. Can you see the character growth now? He says, oh, okay, wait. God's the one who owns that. But then he shares center stage and he says, tell me your dreams. Now, how long, how long has this been? Now, this is, he's 17 when this story begins. He's 30 when uh, he is given the ring by Pharaoh and uh, goes into power. Um, this scene, uh, the narrative says, is two years away from that happening, from his rise to power. So he's 28. He's had 11 years of not knowing what will happen. He's got 11 years of unanswered questions and 11 years of worry and 11 years of fearing for his life. But he's made a shift from here's my dream and it's all about me to, okay, God interprets dreams, I'm pretty sure, but tell me. He's becoming a different person. Do you see that? What's he doing? He's beginning to look up. And so he, on the way out the door, the, he, the dream of the cupbearer was uh, about what would, might happen, and Joseph says, well, what's going to happen is in three days, you'll be lifted up, you'll be restored to your position. The, the baker hears that and thinks, oh, that's great news, and tell me what's going to happen with me, and he says, well, in three days, the king's going to take your head. Sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Um, the cupbearer, on the way out the door, Joseph, it's almost like he says, hey, 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 don't forget me, I'm the one who helped you out of this, don't forget me. And what happens is uh, the cupbearer promptly forgets him. Now you got to pause again. He doesn't know how this will end. As far as he knows, this is it. He's lost his family. He's lost his position. He's in prison. His one ticket out has been forgotten. And here you put yourself in the story again. What would something like that do to you? Who would you think you were? How would you, uh, would God, is God hating you? Is God punishing you? If you can't do anything, you have nothing, and no one remembers you, who are you now? Who are you? So we fast forward to Genesis uh, 41, and it's two years later. And uh, I just want to suggest, so this is, uh, this is 13 years now, okay? This is 13 years of the story of Joseph. I, I just want to suggest, because I know myself, that after six months of suffering in our life, and when things don't work out the way we want, we're questioning God, and we're wondering what's happening. Six months in, we're kind of like, tap out, I'm done, right? I, I can't take this anymore, God. Why me? Oh, God, why me? You know, but he's had 13 years of questioning and wrestling and anguishing and weeping. You have to believe that he spent nights wondering when the nightmare that was his life would end. And here he is 13 years later, and the, the Pharaoh has a dream. And the next morning, it's so disturbing to him, he calls all of the the magicians and the wisdom, the, the advisors and the priestly class, and they can't give him the answer. And there's the cupbearer right next to the, the pharaoh, and he, he says, oh, hey, hey, I, I completely forgot. You remember, king, back when you thought that I was plotting against you? I really wasn't, but you threw me in prison. Remember that? Uh, but, you know, when I was there, there was this young Hebrew slave, and he, remember, he interpreted our dream. Maybe he can interpret your dream, oh, king. And so the pharaoh calls for Joseph, and he dresses him and cleans him up and brings him in front of Pharaoh. And then on the screen, we'll put it for you, Genesis chapter 41, verse 15. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it, but I heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Now notice what happened 13 years after thinking he's the center of the universe. What does he say? I cannot do it. Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. 
Now, do you see the shift? So he's gone from, my life is about me, I'm the center of the universe, to, okay, there's a God, but I'm going to share the stage with him, to only God alone can make sense of this, of your life and mine. And this is, Joseph is now a different person. He's confident of his place. He's aware of who he is. He belongs to God. Nothing can shake that. He's sure of that. And, and then what he does is he recommends that Pharaoh put someone in charge. And you're, you're, you're kind of meant to read that and not assume he's trying to say that he's going to be put in that position. He's just, he's now humbled. He's a different person. And so he suggests, because the, the dream that Pharaoh had was about seven years of, of abundance in their crops and seven years of famine. And he said, what you're going to need to do is, during that seven years, find a capable person, put them over all of this, make sure they can ensure that there are granaries built, and in that seven years, we can have grain to feed the people of Egypt and make money, and our national economy will not collapse, and our, your whole kingdom will not fail. And, but now, what we know, though, is that this does not become, so there Pharaoh puts the ring on his finger and says, it's you, Joseph, you're that guy. But what we know is that Joseph does not become proud he doesn't become a different person because he's now, now his, he doesn't see himself as this important person. In fact, how do we know? Well, he has kids. Later in, in chapter 41, we'll look at it again in a couple weeks, he has two children. One of them he names Manasseh. Now, in the Old Testament, they named people names that meant something. They didn't name their kids Todd and Judy. Okay, sorry if your name's Todd and Judy. That sounded great to the parents. The names meant something. And the name Manasseh means God has made me forget all my trouble in my father's household. So we know he still remembers all the pain of that. And then he has a son, Ephraim, and Ephraim means God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. So he, see, he hasn't gotten too big. He isn't, he's not defining himself by what he does. He's, he's looked up, and he's got a different understanding of himself now. Now this, this story kind of begs the question, because this is the journey that we all go on. We start out as the center of the universe, and then somewhere along the line, we go, well, maybe there's a God, and maybe we can share the stage. And then at some point, we have to make the decision that I, I cannot do it anymore. <coughs> Only God alone can make sense of this. So you've got you to do some self-reflection, and you've got to ask yourself the question, where am I on the journey? Because, listen, just like Joseph, you don't know how this will end. As far as you know in your life, this is it. And you, like everyone in this room, have a list of things in your life that you look back on and you wish they hadn't happened. You've got divorce and you've got abuse and you've got addiction and you've got loss and you've got sorrow and you've got pain and you're trying to figure out what all that means. You have to ask yourself, well, what, are, what are the things in my life doing to me and who do I think I am? So now here, here's, the, here's the beautiful news of this. If you're a follower of Jesus, that same phrase that was said about Joseph when he didn't know what was coming next, that the Lord was with Joseph. See, if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, that's the same thing that's true about you. In fact, when Jesus came into the world at Christmas time, you know, what we, you know one of the names Jesus was given? Emmanuel, you know what Emmanuel means? God with us. You don't know, you don't see the end. You don't know how this is going to turn out. And you're frankly scared. But you need to hear that God is with you. And like he took Joseph on that journey of becoming the person he meant for him to be in the middle of, of his mess, he can take you on the exact same journey. And you're not abandoned. 
And you're not left alone. It may feel that way, but you're not. And you'll find out who you are, not by looking in and going, what does all this mean? What about me? And how do I do this better? And how do I get people to say the right things about me? And how do I have the right things? Instead of clinging to those things that are never going to give you what you hope they'll give you, you look up. And you say, okay, God, who, who do you say that I am? I cannot anymore. I cannot do it. I cannot do it. But you can. Well, I thought it'd be good if we, if we paused and we took a, a personal inventory. And um, here's what I'd like you to do is if you just kind of have a private moment here and you can, if it helps you close your eyes. No one's looking at you. They're having their moment too. And I, I want you to take an inventory of your life. Where are you on that Joseph journey? Where Are you still the center of the universe and you're defining yourself by what you do and what you have and what people say about you? Are you somewhere else on the journey where you, okay, I think there's a God and, and we're going to share the stage though. Have you gotten to the place where you say, I, I simply cannot do it? But God can. God, we need uh, your help. Uh, this is the journey that we all take. We're all human beings. We're all in the middle of our story, and uh, we don't know how it ends. As far as we know, this is it. We don't know what the next chapter holds. We don't know uh, how the things that we're ugly in our life, can be turned into something beautiful and good. We don't, we don't see that. We don't have that perspective. You do. And so today, God, we, we cling to the fact that uh, because you came into our world and you lived the life that we couldn't live and you died the death that we couldn't die and you rose from the dead, you're with us. You have not abandoned us. And so you'll take us on the journey if we're willing to go. So God, we commit ourselves to take the journey of figuring out who we are and then passing it on. And we pray this in your name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand with me if you would. We always leave you with a blessing and so you'll see people around you holding out their hands. It's their way of saying they'd like to receive that. If you're comfortable with that and you want to do that, great. If not, it's okay. Uh, but just receive this blessing. May you know uh, the love of God for you who sees the end of your story from the beginning that has a perspective you do not. You know that he loves you and wants to be with you. You're sent now to love God, to love people, to serve the world in his name. Hug somebody, tell them you love them. Our prayer team's down front if you need prayer.